Welcome back to another episode of Switchboard, episode five. We're really excited about this episode. We're bringing you voices of student activists across Cambridge, working on projects that um, are doing things like making Cambridge more accessible for students, as well as raising awareness about Cambridge's institutional ties to external organizations, um, as well as community-wide projects that are bringing uh, both students within Cambridge and people in the wider city resources that they need. So I'm really looking forward to this episode. I think these guests are going to be super interesting. Liv, are you involved in any kind of activism uh, in Cambridge or what's your experience been like with activism? Mm. Yeah, I think there's so much activism going on in Cambridge, which is so fantastic. Like you can't go anywhere without seeing lots of kind of protests and like social media, people were raising awareness for like student issues, which is really great. I mean, I feel like the closest I'll come to activism is Pink Week, just because it's like breast cancer awareness, but not in the vein that, you know, these guests we're going to be talking to have. So it's really exciting because they're so inspiring people's kind of um, like commitment to these bigger issues. Um, So it'd be really great to hear like why they got involved and like what their plans are for the future. Um, So yeah, I think it'll be a good episode. Have you you ever done any activism? Not a whole lot. I mean, before university, um, I did a little bit more. I was kind of more involved with kind of a, a wide range of movements and and things like that. But since coming to university, I've done a little bit less kind of like more focused work. But recently, I like this past year, I've been on the International Students Campaign uh, SU Committee. And obviously, the, the campaign does a lot of work trying to advocate for international students to the university, especially in COVID. There's been a lot of need for um, amplifying international students' voices to make sure that they're you know, um, their needs are being met by the university, especially in terms of getting back home or staying in Cambridge when lockdowns and other kinds of COVID restrictions are taking place. But no, I'm really, I'm really excited to hear from these students, especially like since I'm at Homerton, I've already heard a little bit about what one of our guests is going to tell us about the Project U campaign. And I've taken the U bus myself. So I'm really excited to hear more about kind of the history behind that campaign and and hear about something that's actually going to directly impact my life as a Homerton student, um, as well as the other the other campaigns and other activists and hear about all the work that they're doing as well. Great. So let's get into it. I'm Harry. Uh, I'm a second year geographer at Girton and I'm also the JCL vice president here. I'm involved in a number of campaigns, external campaigns and internal campaigns to Girton and one of the main things we're trying to uh, increase around Girton and outside of Girton is accessibility into town. Now I'm sure like you've seen all over Camfest there's tons and tons of stigma surrounding Girton and its distance and we often find that there's almost an institutional neglect by the uni that kind of reinforces how we feel about like where we are as a college also a lot of people at Girton are pooled which just adds to this kind of growing frustration and so as VP I'm trying to alleviate those stigmas and those stereotypes and one of the big projects I'm involved in is Project U so that's something that I came up with and I'm co-project leading with Mia Cook who is the Homerton external vice president and that's aiming to get the universal bus or the U bus to stop at Girton and Homerton and everywhere in between basically the universal bus the clues in the name should be universal should cover the whole university alas it doesn't and our aim is to try and make it do so and then one of the other campaigns associated with that that I'm trying really hard on at the moment it's more of a college-based initiative, but it still corresponds to the route between Girton main sites and its off-site accommodation block, which is called Swells Court. Um, there's a section of like track, which is a cycle path slash walking path 
that's called the Ridgeway. Uh, and on it, there are just reflective studs. There are no proper lighting procedures. And when people want to go to or from college to Swells, which is quite a common occurrence if you want to use the library, if you want to go to hall, for stuff like that. If you're going back in the evening, especially in the winter where it gets dark really quickly, there's like no lighting at all on this on this path and it's pitch black and it's terrifying for a lot of students. So that's a joint initiative between me and a few other members of the JCR. But our big one at the moment is Project U and we're seeing some movement slash success. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I think first of all, if we focus on the kind of Project U, the bus campaign, I think you obviously kind of touched on this, but like what kind of made you want to like set this up, get involved in this um, in the first place? Yeah, so my main inspiration was the vice president at Girton from two years ago, who's called Heather Hawkins. She started a quite a large and seemingly quite successful campaign in 2020 to get the U-Bus to stop at Girton. And we talked to the PRC, which is the Planning Resources Committee at of Cambridge, and they decide on the allocation of resources and funds to do with anything ranging from transport to just projects and resources around the university. And at the time, there was a contract proposal change uh, for the U-Bus and where it would serve, what it would be if it was electric or if it was diesel still, um, and a range of other alternatives. And consultations were had in 2020. And Girton was on every single list of options proposed, apart from the first, the one option, the first option, which was the do nothing, do minimum approach. Uh, and so Heather thought that that was a seeming success. She thought that realistically, they're not going to vote for the do minimum approach, especially as it was deemed most cost effective and just the best option to go for the 2.4 option, which included both Homerton and Girton. Case closed, we thought. Um, COVID comes around and that's deemed as a viable excuse, what we're calling it excuse, the university have kind of said something different, um, for delaying it for a year. So they delayed it for a year to July yeah in, in October 2020 they extended the contract by another 12 months to July 2022 we allowed that like we think that's fair enough Covid stopped quite a lot of things we think it's completely fair that that also um, stopped that then only six months later they extended it by another 12 months without consulting anyone on our JCR this is where it becomes a bit more problematic in our eyes um, because we didn't really get any forward that this was happening and we played such an instrumental role we thought in the conversation in 2020 but basically it's predominantly heather as an inspiration to me because she is she was a first year and vice president which is normally like unforeseen you don't run as a fresher but she got it as a fresher and so she's still here um and she said something quite poignant i think in the in the newspaper varsity article um talking about how for, for the university, two years is like not, not a long time, two to three years. But for a student, that's a whole degree. And so if she was like the normal vice president, which is like, like me in second year, she would be out two years later. Uh, and whoever the VP is at the time would have a whole nother battle on, on their hands. But because she's been able to like transfer her ideas and her passion, I think, around the U-Bus and getting it to Girton, I've managed to like take that. And also it's just it's just really like when I first sent out initial emails, I just got really, really angry about the university's response and their seeming like continued lack of almost respect. And I suppose interest in our in our worries and issues, they very much like agreed with us and said, yes, we recognize this is an issue, but they did not provide any action or like even interim measures. So that's where 
my passion for it started sorry that was a rant and a half but yeah no I think that like that all makes a lot of sense and I'm curious do you think like any of the university's friction to getting things going comes from the kind of college structure I know you were saying that you're working with Mia from Homerton who I'm on the JCR with here um and so but I'm curious if like has it has that made it easier having another college to work with um in terms of like getting support from the uni and, it, and in turn does that mean that because everything operates on a college level it makes it harder to have kind of university-wide action taken mm-hmm. I definitely think that that comes into play a bit I think one of the things that me and Mia first talked about and thought would be a good idea is by collaborating we would hopefully have a bit more of like a powerful outreach and powerful voice and I think one of the things that impeded the last campaigns is the fact that it didn't really go outside of being a college matter as such we got they got support from the student union but they didn't really get support like written down in an open letter statement for example from other colleges and that's something that we're trying to reverse and like destigmatize a bit because it is an issue that we would hope would be supported by other colleges and so for example um on monday i haven't actually released any of this yet so kind of an exclusive i don't know um we got um backing for project U approved by the student union on monday i'm yet to post about that but um yeah they've basically now approved it and that was approved with a hundred percent approval rate so which is apparently rare for the student union they can be quite controversial but it shows that there is university-wide backing for this scheme um and but i do think that the college structure does impede it somewhat because it's more localized voices there's more voices to be heard uh, and it's which voice is going to get heard and again it leads to the thing of institutional neglect girton has this stigma girton historically has been like so pushing the boundaries in terms of inclusion and accessibility Um, And yet now we're stuck at this crossroads whereby there is a major thing that we're lacking that other unis have either just by strategic location choice or by the fact that they seemingly have like a wider, louder voice in university issues that we're hoping to also destigmatize and remove the stereotyping from. Yeah, definitely. If we like have a little circle back to the kind of lighting, because we have, I'm from Trinity and we have a very similar kind of passageway that's just pitch black, like especially in the winter, like past a certain time of night. And we're constantly trying to like get college um, to like, but they're not receptive. How has it been in kind of reacting to the JCR's kind of Mm. pressures and how have you been kind of campaigning towards it? Yeah, um, in Girton, I think one of the things that we have, I'm not speaking for any other colleges in this squad, but one of the things we definitely have at Gerson is a sense of community spirit. Uh, and I think our JCRs go a long way in fostering that and making it grow and making an issue that is often quite concentrated in the JCR and pushed by one member of the JCR into a much wider college issue with backing from everyone in college. So the method that we use for the lighting on the Ridgeway is I sent out a form over Christmas at basically an anonymous form if you want you could assign your name to it but it could be anonymous and people listed their experiences or their problems or their forthcomings about about the Ridgeway and about the lack of lighting there and we had over 100 responses within 48 hours which is insane I did not expect that That was my first thing as as JCR vice president I did not expect to get that response but it just shows that student voice is the most important thing and then leading that to a college level there apparently have been some problems in the past I obviously wasn't in my position at at that time so I can't really comment but college have actually been really uh, kind of forthcoming what we've done is we've 
collated as much information as we can surrounding who owns that kind of land, who manages what goes on there and stuff like that. And so by giving college as much information as we can, they seem to be quite receptive to it and also quite willing to work with us if it's deemed a student issue, which it is. And I think it also helps that staff use that passageway a lot and they also have had complaints and problems coming from staff. Um, and also what helps is working with the MCR. Um, so we got at Swirls, a lot of MCR postgrads live there. So we asked for their help as well. We sent out the same survey to them. And by a lot of collaboration and working together, that's how we felt that our problems are most effectively tackled and hopefully solved. But yeah, we'll see. I think that even within the college, like being able to get the um, kind of involvement and get responses from a wider student body seems like like maybe almost the the only or the best way to make any kind of progress within college because like you said even even if it's coming from just one voice on the JCR if that voice is backed by you know the entire the entire student body or at least as you said like hundreds of people who've had the same experience then that's clearly something worth paying attention to I guess I'm curious because there is kind of an overlap in terms of the campaign for the lights in the Ridgeway and then the project you in terms of making Cambridge more accessible in general do you think that points to some kind of like citywide or at least university-wide um kind of lack of accessibility or or like are you do you feel like this is part of a, a larger issue or are these just kind of isolated incidents I somewhat feel like it is it is noting a wider issue in the way that I think the thing that we've found is that the university should be seeing everyone's views at an equal level um, and the issue we've encountered is that they seemingly aren't and the, also the issue we've encountered is that they've put in certain restrictions slash institutional kind of boundaries that make it harder for students to get their voice across especially at this level like the PRC so the PRC I'll, I'll give an example in this regard it has only one student representative sitting on it who is the postgrad student union president when I came to her or when actually she messaged me about Project U she had no knowledge at all about this previous UBUS campaign and then we found out when she was enrolled in her role and it was I think it was July 2022 I oh, know July 2021 sorry and then the kind of the key turn the penny dropped about the fact that I was a bit confused as to why only six months after the first year delay they then added another year on and we both realized that we like there's maybe slight conspiracy in this but also she seemed pretty sure on it as well that by implementing the second delay in june 2022 the turnover of the yearly student union but uh, student representative means that the new one Anjum, had no clue about this ongoing issue that had been occurring since 2020 and so i almost feel like the university takes somewhat advantage of the fact that these student bodies in particular, and these student representatives have this yearly turnover that's prominent and longer standing members that of the administrative kind of managerial aspect of the university don't. They're there for 10 year terms or their tenures are a lot, a lot longer. And often we see like Cambridge Uni has a lot of money. I don't think that that's like that's that's common knowledge. And they spend it in varied ways. And that's not to say that they spend it in the wrong place or the right place, but there are areas where they don't spend the money that seeming there's such a huge voice for and such a huge student backing for. Um, and I think one of the things that we're trying to do to tackle that is 
this social media like transparency campaign about it all. Um, it was very much dealt with as like a college basis beforehand, because that's kind of the typical way to go about these campaigns. You don't really want to make a massive cry uh, and maybe slightly embarrass yourself. You don't really want to put yourself out there about these issues. So it was very much dealt with as like a VP of Girton, Vice President of Homerton working with the university. But what we've tried to do is kind of flip the script on that and get as many people involved as possible. And it's just like insane, the response we've had. I had the Homerton vice president from 2016 DM us ra randomly out of the blue about how excited she was about us leading this campaign, however many years later, uh, six years later, and sent me all of her resources on it, six years later. And it, it's just been like amazing for me as, I, almost like a custodian of it all it's I, I'm kind of I've already got to the point of knowing that probably this issue will not be resolved until after I've left university and that's a sad realization to have made because I thought that hopefully we'd be able to incite right prompt change that's not saying that we haven't come up with lots of interim solutions because we have we've had a few like an ongoing dialogue with the university but yeah I do think there's a wider issue at play uh, that the university does take advantage of this yearly turnover but there are some people who are willing to like fight for the things that may not affect them, but will hopefully benefit future students. And that's what a few of us at Gerson and Homerton are hopefully going to do here. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, that's the end of my questions, Izzy. I don't know if you've got another. No, I think that's basically it. Um, I don't know, Harry, if you have any last thoughts, any other projects go? Um, um, not really. The only thing I would say is that hopefully we're going to be releasing an open letter to all colleges with backing from the student union in the coming days and weeks whereby hopefully we'll get support from as many colleges as possible before our meeting with the planning resource committee in june but yeah that's our that's our trajectory exciting stuff well thank you so much for being here it was really nice meeting you and hearing about the campaigns i know like Ooh. i've already been on the u bus now that it has now that it started um, coming by Homerton and it's so convenient like it's better than any of the other buses so I I'm definitely definitely on board next up we spoke to Lydia from the Cambridge period project who told us about her work as one of the founders of the project and how the action that she's taking extends beyond the university out into the wider community my name's Lydia I'm uh, the president of the Cambridge period project for this year and one of the founding members um, and the Cambridge Period Project is a student-run campaign and now an official university society that aims to, well, kind of has a broad aim of achieving menstrual equity. And so kind of more practically what our work has focused on most recently, um, since its inception really, um, has been alleviating period poverty and period product insecurity um, within Cambridge. So that's both throughout the local community and within the university. Cool. Um, so you said you're um, one of the founders. When did you kind of become aware that this was a problem that, that needed to be addressed? Like when did you become aware that um, insufficient access to menstrual products was an issue? And then what sort of motivated you to start the campaign and to get other people involved? Well, the campaign started last year um, with a group of us a small group of us who were involved in Students for Global Health Cambridge. Um, and we were all on the Sexual and Reproductive Health Subcommittee. And the whole point of Students for Global Health and global health in general is kind of thinking globally, but acting locally on public health issues. And so we were all really struck by 
the alarmingly high levels of homelessness in uh, Cambridge when we all moved here for university. And so we started to think about sexual and reproductive health issues that those people might face. And one thing that came to all of our minds was just how do people who menstruate who end up homeless or struggling to have a fixed um, address cope with their periods. And so we then reached out to someone called Bimini Love, who um, set up street cramps when she was a teenager, which is now, I think, more nationwide group who raise funds to produce these period boxes, which are just boxes with menstrual products, um, heat patches, clean underwear, wipes, basically things that just help you manage your period. And so it really started through doing that. So we then uh, raised some funds to create these street cramps boxes ourselves and distribute them locally. And kind of as we were doing this, we started having conversations between us about what products are available in our colleges. We were all from different colleges. Um, and we kind of noticed between ourselves, there's a lot of variation here. Um, some are doing great jobs, some really aren't. And so then we thought, okay, we can kind of marry, marry up our community project with examining the state of things within the university. And so we designed a survey that we sent out to all JCR and MCRs, asking them whether they provided free menstrual products, how much you know, was in the budget for this, how they went about distributing the products, things like that. Um, and we also added on a question, and I was so pleased we did, about um, how they provide, whether they provide and how they provide free sexual health products, like condoms and things like that. And what came out of this survey were two massive discrepancies. The first being between colleges for period products. And then the second discrepancy was between the provision of menstrual products and sexual health products. All colleges have access to free sexual health products through the SU sexual health scheme. There is not the same thing in place for menstrual products. And that struck me as really wrong because it's something that half the student body have to face, you know, at least twice a term. Um, and so that's been one of the main things of the campaign that the campaign's focused on. Um, and then following that survey, we then sought to measure the level of need there among students. And so we disseminated the survey and got over 600 responses from students in every single college and every JCR and MCR. So, you know, as representative as we could, and over half of students reported to um, find purchasing period products to be a financial burden, at least some of the time. And I think we were all a little bit shocked by that statistic. I don't think we thought it would be that high. Yeah, that made us realise, OK, this is clearly an issue. You know, clearly over half of students are at risk of experiencing period product insecurity and therefore period poverty. Um, so it really is a re very relevant issue. Um, for students in the in the Cambridge student body and yeah we need to do something about it <laughs> yeah definitely I feel like you can see how obviously important the issue is just from the response of students kind of to the project like I feel like it caught on so so quickly like when it was set up everyone was like wow like what a fab idea I was just wondering what kind of have the responses been like from colleges and like the uni I'd say a bit of both I think individual colleges have been fairly receptive and 
the university as well, I think has been reasonably responsive too. So last year we launched an open letter when we kind of launched the campaign asking for free period products in all university department and faculty buildings and a centralized free period product scheme for colleges. We proposed um, to the college levies panel a free period product scheme um, in all colleges similar to the SU sexual health scheme last year and sadly that was rejected. Um, but the health and well-being committee of the university caught wind of the open letter and were in touch with us and they officially recommended to the university that um, they then recommend to all faculties and departments, sorry it's a bit of a chain, um, that they provide free period products. So that's been a fantastic win. Like it's crazy that this isn't something that's happened earlier. Um, but I'm curious also how you manage to balance kind of like doing the university side of things and then also continuing with the community-based work and how that's kind of um, been going lately. Yeah, so I think mainly the structure of our committee really helps with that. So as I said, I'm, I'm like the president kind of overseeing um, things, but then we have two effectively vice presidents, um, one community liaison officer and the other university liaison officer. So our community stuff is always ticking along in the background. It's just that sometimes the university stuff has a tighter deadline that we have to meet. And so we have to kind of shift priorities. Yeah, and they mentioned the the new open letter like that just come out, didn't it? Um, what is kind of the difference between that and the one last year? Oh, so sorry, the open letter is the same open letter as last year. Okay. So we this and launched it in January 2021. And that was kind of for the proposal last year, which sadly got rejected. Mm -hmm. So what we did last week was we actually finally officially delivered that open letter and with it wrote a cover letter that was um, just from me on behalf of the, of the rest of the Cambridge period project. Um, and in that we were able to directly respond to the comments that we got last year about why it was rejected. And we were also able to share more recent up-to-date data that we've gathered since then. So we tried to make it really clear that the student support is there. The open letter was signed by almost 1,500 students um, and societies and alumni and even some members of staff as well. So the support for this scheme is extensive and widespread throughout the university community and especially among students. And the need is there. Yeah, no, that, that all makes sense. I'm curious, like from your perspective as president and also after having done um, all of this work so far, where do you see the project going forward? Well, in terms of the rest of this year, um, we're going to do the tote bag sales and, and hopefully buy some more premium products for our local partners. We're also in the process of partnering up local charities with supermarkets who've agreed to take peer product donations because we want a long term, a longer term solution going forward than just a group of students gathering together some money and trying to gather together some period products and dumping them off kind of randomly. We want kind of long term sustainable links throughout the local community. So that's kind of a main goal for the community side of things. And for the university, obviously, it would be amazing if the university agreed to do um, a centralized free menstrual product scheme. And then I guess further into the future when 
um, robust menstrual product schemes are established in colleges and departments. The Cambridge project can, well, I, either the work is done <laughs> um, or it can move to focus more on putting on events and focus on destigmatizing menstruation. Definitely for me, it's been super interesting hearing about it and also very inspiring to hear you talk about this stuff. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. It definitely feels like my baby. <laughs> um, it's been a wonderful thing to be a part of and we've got a great team behind us that have made everything possible um so I think we've just got to keep our fingers crossed and travel hopefully <laughs> definitely well thank you so much for being here and chatting with us and lastly we spoke to Maddie and Alicia from Demilitarised Cambridge who are trying to shed light on the university's investments in arms programs um, I'm Maddie I'm in my third year doing HSPS um and yeah I'm Demilitarised Cambridge um, is about kind of cutting the relationship between uh, the university and the arms industry. Um, and we're mainly focusing on research and consultancy um, and particularly the ways in which the university takes money from arms companies um, and then kind of funnels towards them uh, its best research, its best students, its best um, business links so as to make uh, their kind of weapons and their practices um like all the more deadly basically um and i got involved in demons rise cambridge uh, about half a year ago um partly because um i'm on the ethical affairs campaign um and i knew some people who were kind of wanting to restart it um and i thought it's often not talked about, there's like massive campaigns in the university on cutting ties with fossil fuel campaigns. And I think that's like really great, obviously, but um, I think we often as students spend a lot of time protesting and talking against um, wars and conflicts. Um, and this campaign is kind of shows how the, we're directly complicit in it and um, how we can cut that basically. Um, and I'm Alicia, I'm a second year theology student um, and I also got involved about half a year ago at the beginning of this year and that was when I um, joined um, Cambridge like in person because I did last year from home um, and yeah um, I've done work with campaign against the arms trade before and when I got to Cambridge I was just like I had this image of Cambridge as like you know a benign education hub as like lots of people do um, and I got here and I realised that all the issues that I saw are like in London, in the big arms fairs, um, actually Cambridge is, is complicit in all of these things. And I think like one of the main aims of the campaign is like spread awareness about the university's complicity in like worldwide human awareness abuses, because it's not really very talked about um, um, with the eventual aim of like Cambridge like thrives on its um, reputation. So even if it doesn't care about our moral arguments, if we do enough damage to its reputation by spreading awareness, then we can put pressure on it to change these, these stances and these actions regardless. Yeah, that's really, it's so true what you're saying about like fossil fuels and like the kind of divestment is so like widely kind of spoken about in university and something that I feel like all students feel kind of um, like enthusiastic about that movement, but like, arms investments isn't 
as much of like I feel like in people's consciousness how has like the response from the students been um the student body uh I can lead on this one a bit um yeah so I think the reason why arms isn't talked uh, spoken about as much is that it's partly a bit more um undercover basically um the fossil fuels campaign has been primarily focused on divesting from fossil fuels so removing all our investments from them um and in general uh the university doesn't invest in arms companies but it has relationships kind of that those revolving door relationships um you know uh, us taking some money and then giving them research so i think that's partly um why and i think as well a lot of um a lot of demilitarized ca campaigns can kind of be depoliticized into like oh love peace everyone join hands together um and that's like doesn't really get to the full issue so i think that's perhaps why there hasn't been um engagement on the exact issues that we're looking at and like crucially for this campaign, we're really trying to overcome that town gown divide in activism. Um, I think what you said about trying to break down the town and gown divide in terms of activism is a really interesting point. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. I mean, partly what we've tried to do, and I, you know, I don't know how fully successful we've been, but like um, having our meetings not in um, Cambridge College spaces. And also having like a presence at protests, because if you've ever been to a Cambridge protest, you'll see like there's, it's not many, I mean, there are students, but I wouldn't say it's dominated by students. There's loads of kind of local um, and youth XR groups. Um, there's kind of local, uh, there's loads of trade unions there. So we've been trying to go to protests and have the Demons Rise Cambridge banner there. But also as well, when you're thinking about your meetings, this like a general thing for overcoming that divide is thinking about the times that you have your meeting, that they wouldn't like interfere with uh, like a nine to five um, job. And I guess differently thinking about how the, the, the accessibility of your spaces. And I think it's so important because so many of the issues that you see in Cambridge, um, like homelessness and um, looking at kind of refugees and immigration stuff if you don't have a knowledge of like the no local network of people if you're only in this student um, bubble you you can't really make any substantial change so yeah I think that's really important in campaigning. Yeah, it's also much um, long lasting really because with students like we saw demilitarized um, Cambridge existed before and it kind of um, there was this report but it kind of all fizzled out as the students left and with COVID um, and it's like obviously it's it's like rebuilt itself but there's like obviously a conscious effort always to like reteach all the facts that we know about Cambridge to first year students and it's just yeah it's just better to break them sort of barriers because it, it's clearly not an issue that only affects Cambridge students I mean we're the ones putting money into it and are more like complicit in it but it's still I mean like these debates are things that should be on everyone's consciousness.
Yeah. And just following on from that, like, I was just curious, like, what is the kind of, what actions do you take and how are you like aiming to kind of raise consciousness and raise awareness of this kind of issue? Um, in terms of what people can do, um, the main thing is like getting the word out. Like we have like quite a, a lot of like the stats that we have, um, but um, like so little is known about this like side of Cambridge in the public. Um, it really like is an institution that survives due to its reputation or like, and that's what Cambridge kind of thrives on. They thrive on um, the public having a good perception, job industries having a good perception, attracting like top end students. Um, and then they use that, like that, that perception and that ideological like backing so then when they get these, they get millions of pounds every year of funding from arms companies um, to then use that, that ideological backing to legitimise what the arms company is doing, to push particularly engineering students, but students like at the careers fairs are, way, are over-dominated by really unethical industries. Um, and there's often a lot, of, a, like barely any transparency um, because of the way like the... Um, like modern violence is so different from old-fashioned violence. It's no, it's it's no better, but it's so um, like um, disjointed. Like one person will make an engine. They might not even think that they're making an engine for a warplane. They're just their job is to make the most efficient engine. And then one person's job is to do this, and one person, and then no one is responsible. Um, and that's how modern warfare really works. And it's that's easy to be misleading and to kind of people not really think about what they're doing. They're making an engine for Boeing and that goes in commercial planes and that goes in warfare planes and it's not really thought about. And just like continuing on that, um, on our methods. Um, and in terms of in-person, we started putting, um, there's like stickers around Cambridge um, about the links that Cambridge has with the arms industry. Um, and as I said, like we had a rally last term and are hoping to get, more like kind of in-person um in-person meetings and in-person demonstrations um so yeah those as well are a few of the specific methods that we've used yeah so you mentioned that you have been able to do some stuff online and some stuff in person do you feel like um yeah I don't know whether based on your involvement in direct action and like protests and demonstrations and things like that if you feel like that's something that's more effective than social media or that you need both things um I personally feel that nothing beats that collective feeling of coming together at a rally or something and I I think that's why like the workers the campaigners like will always win because that that feeling of solidarity all together um, and that strength in numbers, um, the other side like doesn't have that. But having said that, um, I think what COVID has made campaigners realise is um, that accessibility is super important. So from now on, like all events that we can be made hybrid, like hybrid online and in person, we're trying to do that. And combining that with other general accessibility stuff, like even through my time at Cambridge, I've noticed how much more welfare focused um, campaigns have become. So I think um, like everyone has their different role. And while I think 
going out there and protest, protesting, getting on the megaphone is super important and will make people feel like really engaged. Um, it's also important that you have those online spaces, that you have those people who are going to be doing the sending out the FOIs, doing the social media and to make it kind of safe and fulfilling. Um, yeah, you need both. So can you tell us a bit more just about like what has the response been from uni? Like what have you been sending? Is it just kind of being completely like um, falling on deaf ears? Um, so the first thing that, well, since the relaunch of Demilitarised, there's been plenty of things sent before that we sent was in our um, Michaelmas like um, campaign launch, which was during this protest. We spent like we sent um, an, uh, a letter to Cambridge Management that had we'd collected lots of signatures for, and that one hasn't received even an acknowledgement response. And um, the only time like this, like since relaunch, that the investment team has. Um, said anything was during the like divestment town hall which was like um an event with um the ceo um tilly franklin um and um uh Hon Fell, who are um there to kind of answer questions about divestment in general um and um one of the demilitarized people asked um asked a question about arms divestment um and basically the, the gist of her answer was that they they have the ability to to divest but then they're not going to I am curious like how do you go forward after receiving that kind of response and how do you um both in terms of like welfare like how do you find the motivation to keep going and then practically how do you um like what's the campaign's next step the strategy for us was always going to be spend this term um getting awareness out and then next term on the specifics so we're hopefully going to be like relaunching the Cambridge um, military academic complex uh, report which has um, the kind of detailed statistics um, about the relationships so we hope that was always going to kind of like starting big and getting the word out this term and going in like more specific um, next term so yeah somebody who's listening hasn't heard anything at all about demilitarized Cambridge, what are the most important facts that people should um, kind of keep with them about Cambridge's involvement with arms investment? Like what's the most important thing to know? Um, basically that um, Cambridge has like research links with like um, Boeing, a heinous arms company that like profits of selling war um, equipment to countless anti-humanitarian governments. Um, Caterpillar, a company that like makes bulldozers that are used um, to demolish houses um, um, like to, um, in Gaza, um, they're used by Israel. Um, they received like £64,000 from BAE, which is like one of the most globally known arms companies. Um, 973000 from Boeing, um, a million five hundred and thirty-two thousand from Rolls-Royce which like people think of Rolls-Royce oh that's a vintage car company but it doesn't it makes the engines for like 25% of global military aircraft and all of them like figures that's all in last year. I, I think as well I'd say that like this issue maps onto so many other issues so if you care about the climate crisis or workers rights um, or like coloniality and racism, then this is um, something that you, that you should 
um, care about. And if you are interested, um, please do like message our Facebook or our Instagram page and we can add you to the to the group chat. This campaigning requires no previous knowledge. Um, I like absolutely no experience on campaigning on demonstration um, before I joined. So we're just like really looking for any anyone who has any interest in this to just join our campaign. So you have another Ask Vulture this week, a slightly more serious one, perhaps. This person writes, all my friends are getting internships or applying for internships over the summer. I feel a lot of pressure to do the same, but it's never something I'd really thought about. Should I be pursuing an internship this summer? And what are the tips out there? What do you think, Izzy? Okay, I think that's a really good question. So in the summer between my first and second year, I did not apply for an internship and I didn't have any kind of job or anything um, because I was pretty exhausted, to be honest, from a whole first year of Cambridge of a weird kind of hybrid online in-person year and thought that I would want to kind of have the summer to catch up on my work, to relax um, and just spend time at home with my family. But in hindsight, I do wish that I had done something. I think that the break is so long between the end of Easter term and the start of Michaelmas of the following year that some kind of um, work experience or internship or something would have been good even just to like fill my time because I got kind of bored. Obviously, Cambridge is a super intense experience. And so uh, it's good to have breaks in between, but equally you get sort of used to the intensity. And so not having anything to do over the summer was definitely maybe not the most rewarding kind of use of my time. Um, so looking towards next summer, I'm applying to a few internships and just trying to kind of like um, give myself the opportunity to figure out what I want to do after my degree with those internships. So I think that's kind of my best piece of advice is that like the kinds of activities and uh, jobs and internships, any other sort of experiences that you try and that you seek out um, during the breaks or over the summer. Um, obviously, there's a difference between having a job because you're saving up money for something where you need um, a constant inflow uh, income. Yeah. Um, or you need a constant income of money. But if you have the time and the capacity to be doing some, to have a little bit more flexibility in terms of what kind of thing you do, definitely the summer is your chance to weed out the things that you don't want to do. So you can also think of it like that, like try as many different things as possible so that then you can figure out what sort of career, what sort of path you don't want to take and narrow down the choices of what you might want to do after uni. But what about you, Liv? What, what's your experience with internships? Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with a lot of what you said. The same way I didn't have one last summer, like first or second year, I just had like kind of part-time job at home, like just to get money and then just spend it mostly with my friends and family, which was good because it was relaxing. But also, yeah, I got a bit of money saved then for coming back this year. Whereas this summer, I am trying to apply for internships. But I do think that like the big thing in this question is the pressure. And I feel the pressure too. And I think that because it depends a lot about what kind of field you're going into. Like if you're going to like finance kind of finance things, like legal things, consulting things, um, internships are so like defined and formalized that there are so many you can apply to. Um, and I feel like it, it gets talked about a lot. But if those aren't the fields you're going into, I don't think there's you should be putting too much pressure on yourself to be having to have an internship. Like an internship is something that should be beneficial to you to gain, like like, yeah, like Izzy said, like gain experience in a sector and think about if you want to do it, 
it's not a tick list that you have to have on your CV in order to get a job after university, which I think is the problem there. Because I definitely thought like earlier in the year that it was something I needed to do. If I wanted to get a job, I needed experience. I needed this. I needed that. And it's just too much pressure to put on yourself, especially if you're not wanting to go into a field that has such formalized like internship processes. So it really is to just be an opportunity to learn more about something. So I am applying to them. I do want one. But at the end of the day, if I don't get one, then... I'll just kind of do the same as last year, part-time work to get money and just have a relax because it's too much pressure to put on with exams and stuff to be freaking out trying to find an internship. If one comes up, I definitely go for it. But I don't think, I think there is a lot of pressure and like an internship culture um, at the moment. There's no need to get stressed out about. Yeah, definitely. I think there's something to be said for actually using the breaks in between terms and in between years to rest and to, you know, kind of like reevaluate what your interests are and pursue things outside of academics and outside of your future career path, because obviously we don't get a lot of time during term time to be able to do those things. So you can also consider spending your breaks in ways that you wouldn't get to otherwise doing things maybe that are more creative or spending time with people you don't otherwise see, or like Liv said, getting a part-time job and saving up money for the next year. And I don't think that that's any less impressive or noble or um, any less worthy than choosing to get an internship. Um, So I think, yeah, there shouldn't be any pressure. Whatever choice you make about how to spend your time outside of term um, is a worthwhile choice. Yeah, definitely. I think that's it for this episode then. I really enjoyed this one. I think it was really, really interesting speaking to everyone about activism and it's very inspiring to kind of get involved in more things. Yeah, that's what I was going to say as well. Just like the energy from all of the guests that we had on was really, really exciting to hear about all the stuff that's happening university wide. I think sometimes we can get quite like caught up in college news and things that are happening like mm-hmm. on very local levels. But remembering that things are happening at other colleges and across the university as a whole is a really nice kind of reminder that we're all uh, experiencing this together and that there's a lot that we can fight for and, and be um, kind of united um, about as a university. So I really enjoyed it too. Well, on that note, thank you so much for listening. Um, This has been a really great episode and we'll see you next week.